Well, your introduction to the sermon today has already happened. And so we are spared a lengthy introduction. Uh, What you just saw, if you just stop and think about it, was three great events. One was the event of someone entering into the church through Christian baptism in order that they might receive regeneration by the Holy Spirit and to have saving faith in Jesus Christ. Another was was coming to profess faith in Jesus Christ, whereas the first one would grow and and in a grammar level, if you know the the concept, in in a kind of what I believe manner, they will grow to discern what they believe from the very first years of their life. But we're awaiting that confirmation faith, what we call saving faith, a faith which which enables them to put their hope and faith in Jesus Christ and to understand and to discern why. Why as both related to themselves and how they need that kind of experience of life to discern that about themselves and the meaning of original sin, not just actual sins, but also the meaning of the cross and why this body on a cross, discerning that body, why that would would have any logical way of saving them from their sins. A confirming faith. And that was the second thing. And then we had a persevering faith. Someone who comes recognizing that that on a day-by-day basis they need to persevere in that faith. And to persevere they need the means of grace of a gospel-believing church and therefore bringing themselves under the jurisdiction of Christ in His presence, mystical communion presence, through word, sacrament, and, and government, with the means of grace necessary to persevere until the end. Three great events. Each event raises questions. And so what I want to do in this sermon is to address some of those questions. In other words, to take the story that we've just celebrated and now translate that story into rhetoric, into a reasonable why that story. To gain that answer, we want to understand the story as it's presented theologically and biblically in the Scripture. And especially, we want to turn to this incredible passage, because really, I can't think of no passage that better starts the questions and concludes the questions at the same time than this passage in chapter 1 of John, where we hear again those words, I came baptizing with water for the reason that he might be revealed, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What is baptism? Is there a difference between John's baptism and Christ's baptism? Clearly there is. What is the baptism that we celebrate today? Clearly it's Christ's baptism. And therefore we need to understand the relationship of Christ to baptism and to the very promise of the Holy Spirit. A Holy Spirit who in in turn is promised to give us rebirth in the next chapter. To be born again that we might believe or enable. We call it effectual calling in the Calvinistic tradition. An idea that God before the beginning of time effectually calls some. Not universally calls some, everyone, but effectually calls some by means of this process that is just described. And so let's open in prayer and then we're going to go pretty quickly through this passage to see what answers we get uh, and the applications that they have for us as parents, as children sitting in this room, and all of us. Let's pray. Lord, come again, would you? 
come yet again. You have faithfully promised yourself in the midst of us. And so we pray you'd be in the midst of us, that you would transact what is here, your verbal revelation, infallible as it is, and that you would, though complete its effect in us by giving us new eyes and ears to hear and see the illumination that is required, that we would understand it and apply it. Come, Lord, give us these, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let me just first of all remind you, some of you have been here, some of you haven't, but if you're familiar with John, you will know that John's gospel uh, is, is just, the whole gospel has this curious interdependence between or in the theme of the temple and the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is the very central thesis of John, that, that Christ is the temple fulfilled. We begin in chapter 1, verse 14, for the word, the covenant word, becomes flesh and templed among us. And we know that word to be filled with, filled the word is truth and grace. If you're a discerning reader, if you've read and have understood the Old Testament, you know that that filled language is speaking of, of course, the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud of God that would bring discernment and experience. Grace, the power, truth, the message would bring it into the temple through the means of grace. You're already set up. And of course, we're not making this stuff up because just right after that passage, the, the, uh, the editorial, if you will, the, the John's gospel puts you directly. There's all kinds of stuff in the other gospels, if you remember. But now, this, from this introduction of who this Christ is, the first event he wants to talk about is the event of his baptism, which we know just skipped right over chapters in Matthew, for instance. There's a reason for that. Because here we go into a controversy. The curious interdependence between temple and Holy Spirit is beginning to flesh itself out. Now, if you're going to read the rest of John before we turn to this passage, you would see that all through John, Christ is presented as the temple fulfilled. Right here, you're going to see the beginning of it in the relationship with the Holy Spirit, but then in the next chapter, he promises that the temple will be uh, destroyed and in three days it will be raised up. And he, of course, is speaking of himself. Beginning in all of the I am statements, they are all very carefully situated in the temple so that you'd be very clear that when he says, I am the life, I am this, this bread, he's talking about the temple life, the temple bread, all of these things that are part of ceremonies in the temple. And then, of course, chapter 14 begins to focus on the ascension ministry. And Jesus promises them that, yes, he's coming, leaving, but he's coming back. And the discerning reader will understand that he's not talking about the second return because he immediately begins to talk about he's not going to leave us as orphans. He's coming back in the portion of the Holy Spirit in the mystery of communion there. And he's going to set up a great house of God with many rooms. The greater things envisioned under his ascension ministry is that when Christ ascends, Christ will come again in a mediatorial way by the Holy Spirit forming temples all over the world. And that brings us to the Great Commission of John, very different from Matthew's. His Great Commission wants to remind them as he leaves that your commission is to basically plant temples. How does he say it? Just as the Father sent me, what is John's thesis? John sent him as a temple. Just as the Father sent me, so I send you. And then he makes this amazing proclamation. Right after he says that, he says, the temple benediction. Every Jew would know exactly what he's doing when he says, peace be with you. 
He's inaugurating the temple era. He goes on to say, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he says right after that, here's that interdependence, receive the Holy Spirit. The temple being organized, if you will, being instituted in the commission of the apostles. Receive the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit which enlivens the temple, the very Spirit which makes temple temple, the mediatorial presence of God by the Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. And then what does he say? And me, we evangelicals, because we've been so untempified. I'm sorry, I make up words all the time. We're so untempified that, that we just have no way to interpret this, but it just makes perfect sense. Because he says, right after receive the Holy Spirit, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold the for- forgiveness from any, it is withheld from them. That is powerful language there. That's what got him killed, you know. When he professed to be the temple of God with the power to forgive sins, only God can do that. He gave such power to the church. It makes sense, if you think about it, of the great prayer of Christ with the disciples in John 17, and, and this I and them and you and me and me and them and you and me stuff, and you go, Ugh. and he's talking about temple. And this amazing, mystical communion presence of God on earth. Now, this isn't contrary to the other Gospels. I won't take the time now because we don't have a lot. I'd love to do it. You know I would. But, but in Matthew, you see the same thing. In chapter 16, he talks about the, the temple. Upon this rock, I will build my church. The church synonymous with temple. And then he talks about the keys, which any good scholar would know is talking about the language that's attributed to the priestly service of, of the priest in the Old Testament temple. And then with these keys, he talks about binding and loosing on earth that which is bound in heaven, loosing on earth what is loosed in heaven. Same kind of thing he's talking about here, forgive those who, you know, etc. And then what does it do? You go to chapter 18, he takes that passage and again is totally abused. When two or more gathered in my name, and we almost think we can go to Starbucks and do that. And what he's talking about is, is the jurisdiction of the temple. If you look at it, it's a discipline case. He's talking about quorum. And who constitutes quorum on behalf of the temple in order to judicate this binding and loosing in the life of the believers of the temple. And you fast forward to chapter 28 and he starts talking about the Great Commission, his style. And what does he say? That's right. What John's going to say here in his way in chapter 1. He's going to say what? Go you therefore and make disciples. Got it, Lord. Got it. Make disciples. How do we do it? Surprise, surprise. Broad Americana evangelical. By baptizing. Hold on. The sinner's prayer. No, where's the sinner's prayer? No, by baptizing them. Now, of course, that comes with a prayer. That comes with confession and faith. Promising that confession. But by baptizing them and teaching them all things whatsoever. And lo, what does he say? Temple stuff. I'm with you. How are you with me? You're up there. Temple with. I'm temple with you. Any Jew would know what he's talking about. And so that sets up a context. John here, there's an inquisition. Verse 24. Now they had been, they had been sent from the Pharisees, these people who were talking. I'm just picking up into the story. And they asked him, why then are you baptizing? Talking to John. If you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And what does he say? This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Sent from the Pharisees. Those who, there was a time, these were the most powerful and rich uh, people of the temple aristocracy. 
Notice the confusion and the focus here is all about what? Baptism. There's something going on here. John's gospel, the word becomes flesh and temples among us. And then we begin the next scene and he's now being asked by the temple aristocracy the meaning of your baptism, John. And and it's about baptism. Now clearly this is a temple leaning. Hmm, how does baptism relate to temple? Good question. Let's keep going. And so you have this idea of that what interested them was their baptism. It was his baptism as a priestly role. And they were offended because priests would do this. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. Why are you acting like a priest, John? Who are you to be baptizing? And he goes on to say in terms of this thing, this baptism, this priestly service, depicting a cleansing, even rebirth. If you go back to the Exodus and other passages. A rebirth is from the labor leading into the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament temple. It was known in the Old Testament, the water of rebirth. God, we missed that. Do you hear what's going on here? Christ is the temple, and we're going, and now we're beginning to go into a place where it's told that Christ will fulfill the temple, and he's going to, therefore, fulfill the temple's labor, this water labor. Do you see, right before the Holy of Holies, there was this water labor, just like that. Now, again, I don't care if you get dunked. I don't care if you go into the Jordan and and get your water put on you. But in that case, we know it's talking about a laver where they would be sprinkled with the water. And herein is baptism. John out in the Jordan, we have no clue how he did it. Were they dunked? Were they not? There's no description, so don't worry about that. I don't really care how you get wet. But the point was that they're questioning whether he can be doing this or not legitimately. It's about baptism. And John says, what? You could have said, yeah, I can. Anybody can do it. You know, everybody's a priest these days. No, he said, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing that kind of baptism. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm not that baptism. I'm the baptism that, that happened often around the temple where there was various opportunities, especially in the first century. A lot of history's passed. You had the Maccabean Revolt, and, and this particularly was done, a kind of repentance ceremony. A ceremony would come and you'd confess yourself And it was here particularly put in what we call eschatological framework, which means this futuristic-looking thing, wherein they would be baptized, and it was a part of the march or the desire and the hunger for the coming of the Messiah. John was the last of the prophets. Christ called him the greatest of the prophets. Does he mean by that categorically? Does he mean by that uh, experientially? But probably both. He was a great prophet. But he was the greatest in terms of the last. The one that precedes, of course, the coming of the true Messiah who would fulfill the temple. And so you see this answer begins to take place. How you had in this emphasis of John, this temple, Holy Spirit, and then a temple ceremony that promised the coming of rebirth in the Holy Spirit. And this was something you had to do, now listen to this, oh, listen to this, before you were justified through the sacrifice of the Holy of Holies. It was before the Holy of Holies administered. In order that you might be then given true and saving faith, presumably through the cleansing of the Shekinah glory spirit. Moses, remember, talked about a circumcision of the heart. 
circumcision and baptism mean the same thing according to Paul in chapter 2, verse 20. In terms of their symbolic meaning, both resemble a curse. Both resemble death. Both resemble new life out of that death into an everlasting life. You can see it and read about it in the epistle of Peter, for instance. But here's what we have. This amazing, incredible story where the Pharisees, the temple aristocracy, come to this last but greatest prophet who declares that his baptism is not the fulfillment. That someone who comes after him is going to fulfill it. And of course, it's important to notice what is described here in verse 32. Because John then bore witness. How, do, how does Jesus have the right? See, God, read your Bible slowly. How does Jesus have the right to fulfill the temple? Here's what he says. John bore witness. That word witness is important. He is on trial for Jesus Christ. And he bore witness to this. Here was his testimony as to why he could say what he said about Jesus Christ. He said, I saw the Spirit. Every Jew knows what's talking about. The Shekinah glory that descended on the tabernacle, that descended on the temple. Even before that, descended upon the waters of Eden temple. Even before that, descended on the waters of Noah's flood. Even that, that descended upon the waters of the Red Sea. The same Spirit is descending. A salvific, life-giving Spirit is salvating on Jesus Christ. He says, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. No, that's a description that's taken right out of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The hovering of the Spirit over the waters of creation. Like a dove. The same Spirit that John earlier, remember he talked about Jesus, the Word, the same Word that was in creation that created all things. Well, here he's declaring Jesus Christ to be the Word, and the Spirit comes down upon the Word and creates new life. Sorry if you were expecting a five-point PowerPoint. You know, this is, we've got to do rhetoric here. We've got to start reasoning better together. Listen, turn your brains on. It's all right. It's fun. What is going on here? And he goes on to say, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Later on, Jesus is going to say, as they were in chapter 3 talking about this issue of of new birth and life and, and the coming of salvation, Jesus then verifies what John says. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, the baptism of water that is coupled with it the very Holy Spirit itself. Unless one is born of water, confession, if you will, the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then he goes on in chapter 6, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus Christ said that. In other words, he is the fulfillment of temple. By his word, coupled with the hovering spirit of the same created word that created the world, I give life. I know we must think these old 2,000-year-old people must be uneducated, not very smart. I mean, we have that tendency. We, We are all modernist chauvinists. We always think that new is better. I'm telling you, there's some brilliance going on here. 
There's some absolute brilliance going on here. I've been doing this for 35 years, and I just can't tell you how much I don't yet know preaching every week practically. And I keep coming across this stuff going, blow my mind. I mean, in a sentence, John managed to put the whole of redemptive history into it as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This stuff is true, guys. I'm so tempted to go off on a diatribe right now, but I won't do it. So what's the difference between John's baptism and Christ? You know, it's interesting that John does something else which is kind of interesting in John. Some of you know, we've, we've even named this Anabeno, that means I'm ascending, that John's gospel is all about the climax of Christ's ascension. And it's interesting that he sets up the, the gospel into two major parts. Part one is Christ not ascending. Someone comes to him and says, we want you to ascend to the temple. And Jesus says, no, I will not go. I will not ascend. For I've not yet done what I've come to do. And you're going to see what John means by that. In other words, during his ascension ministry, I'm telling you this in advance so you'll see it in Scripture. During his, his incarnation ministry, his purpose was to make atonement for sin. To fulfill the temple as to fulfill the ceremony of sacrifice and the paschal lamb, the substitutionary lamb of God. That's the purpose of his incarnation, to die for our sins. They wanted him to be glorified too quickly. And he said, nope, not going there. I'm not going to go to the temple and be glorified. But it was still about the temple. They want him to go to a great temple ceremony. I won't go yet. i got to die first. Part one of Anabino. I will not die. I'm not supposed to die yet. The second part happens there in chapter, what, 15 or so, where he starts talking, where, where, no, 20, where, where Mary is waiting outside the, the uh, uh, tomb, and he's now been, res- he's died, he's been resurrected, and now he comes to her as she's grieving, and, and she says, and she goes and clings to him, and many of you have heard this many times, some of you haven't heard it at all, that's fine, and she goes and says, and starts clinging to him, and Jesus says, quit clinging to me, Mary, for I am ascending. Go tell the disciples, I am ascending. And of course, speaking now of this greater things where there'd be temples all over the earth with his presence by the Holy Spirit, baptizing with the Holy Spirit. That's where all this is going. And so look at what happens next. So the difference between John's baptism and Christ is very clear. And by the way, all four Gospels record this preparatory ministry of John the Baptist. That in a way that sets you up for a greater baptism of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. All three are unanimous in how they say that. And you see that what John's baptism is about, just to clarify it, because you're still thinking, okay, clear it up. You see, Christ entered into the baptism of John in order to fulfill his incarnation ministry of being in solidarity with humanity so that he became sin on our behalf by entering into a sinner's baptism and confessing and, uh, in his sins in, in behalf of all humanity. This, this is really cool. It's, it's the Paschal Lamb. Remember, there was this substitutionary sacrifice of atonement in the temple. And the idea is the people would put their sins ceremonially on this lamb, and they would then go and crucify it, basically. Kill it. And see, that's exactly what's happening here. He is, by entering into the baptism that was 
offered to all those who would describe and understand themselves and confess themselves to be a sinner in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. He came, and on behalf of the people, in solidarity with the people, confessed the sins of the people as if his own. The mystery that Paul describes, and he who knew no sin became sin. Paul, chapter 6, or 5 of Romans. And so what you have here is an amazing statement. Because Christ, you see, is coming. He's being baptized as a sinner. And this will only culminate in his death on a cross as a sinner should die. But a death unlike any other, it's a death for all of humanity because he is human. He is human. But he's also God. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can deliver the Holy Spirit. Only God can fill the presence of the temple with himself in a manner that we can be saved. And so you see this amazing distinction. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, of confession of sin, of, of, of becoming sin in the eyes of God and acknowledging that in preparatory for salvation. But he who comes after me, he says, will baptize you by water and the Holy Spirit. Do you see what's happening here? The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and declared, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said that as he was coming to be baptized. Now you know why. He was coming as the Paschal Lamb to be baptized. So endearing to think about what's happening here. But then he declares after his baptism, when the controversy starts to happen here, and his defense to the Pharisees was what? No, you don't understand. My baptism was not God's baptism, the baptism of the temple. He who comes here, the one I baptized, he it is who the Holy Spirit came upon like a dove on the word of God. It's him who will baptize in the Holy Spirit, and therefore the gift of faith unto eternal life. Are you getting this? I hope so. Because if you understand the distinction between John's baptism and Christ's baptism, if you understand what's going on here, as I very briefly had to try to explain it, in light of the Old Testament, you heard read already Exodus 30, where you see that labor ceremony, etc. But if, you have, if, if you've understood that, then you're going to begin to understand what happened here today. And so let me just try to to put it into terms here. All through the Old Testament, this kind of labor baptism is described, as I've said, as a kind of new life, ritually speaking. We see it in Leviticus 15, if you're taking notes. I'm not going to read it now for time's sake. You see it in Deuteronomy 23.10 and following. It's interesting, as you come to the New Testament, baptism has the same effect. Ephesians 5.26, in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. What's going on there? Baptism is a a Greek word that can mean a ceremony, but it's derived from the word washing. He's saying that a person married to an unbeliever by virtue of being a part of the church and through that baptism can be still saved, basically, is what he's saying. But what's interesting is acknowledging this role of baptism, not because you're saved, but in order to get saved. This is crucial. Just like what we see in John. This kind of a baptism 
in order to receive the Holy Spirit that only Christ can give. And so he has this curious thing going on, this construction, literally, in order that she might be, what, made holy, that is, to be justified through or by the cleansing of the, and it's clear there, there's an article, not by washing, but by the washing. Seems pretty clear he's talking about what every Christian would have known, and he didn't have to articulate it in those days, that everyone had joined as starting in Acts 2, through baptism and the tomb of the temple church, just like we see in Acts 2. And so it's really interesting how often we see Scripture describe baptism in this way. In other words, just try reading the following passages. Just read it simply, okay? No conniving going on. Just read it simply. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions, blah, 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 blah. This is chapter 3 of Titus. And then he goes, but when he, the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. And you're asking, how? How? He just put us down with all this stuff. He saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Oh, come on. What water are we talking about? There is no water except for baptism water in the life of the temple, Old Testament, and the life of the church. I mean, he's certainly not talking, go take a bath. And so the Spirit, through the water of rebirth, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He's saying that in order for us to be justified, we must be regenerated. That is, given eyes to see, ears to hear, that we might put our hope and faith in Jesus Christ. Because without that regeneration, we could not, because we are morally, spiritually dead, have faith. Faith, the gift of God, according to Ephesians. The free gift of God. Something he must give to us. We can't give it to ourselves. And if he's going to give it to us, he has to give us the very nature that would receive it, which is the Holy Spirit's nature by virtue of rebirth, a new creation. Go read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It's not accidental, by the way. Chapter 2, 1 through 10, talks about rebirth by the Holy Spirit and saving faith. And, and then right after that, verse 11 and following, talks about what? The temple church. And where we've been grafted into that temple church as a means of salvation. You see the same coming together all the time. And so you see this over and over, this association of baptism with regeneration. Hebrews chapter 10, Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, and then he goes on and says, full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. What does he talk about, sprinkled clean? Well, he's talking to the Hebrews, where they would have been sprinkled with the labor water as an entrance into the Holy of Holies. Sprinkled clean by this water of regeneration. And he goes on and says it. I'm not making this up. Full assurance with our hearts, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. That whole person being washed by the pure water of the Holy Spirit. Goes on, and you see it in many places. Acts chapter 2 begins to make sense. We heard it today, didn't we? What must I do to be saved? Repent. There's John's baptism. As in confess, recognize yourself to be a sinner. Be baptized. Now, that surprised us. 
But that's understood as to receive the Holy Spirit, to, to have the Holy Spirit, to be given the Holy Spirit in order that we might believe. And it's associated with baptism as a cause, effect, event. Why does CVS call me every time I'm preaching? I don't know. I've got drugs, but it always does this. Excuse me if y'all heard that. 1 Peter 3. Baptism, which corresponds to this, what he's been talking about, the Holy Spirit. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. No, he doesn't mean magic by the removal of dirt from the body. What happened today with the children is not that there was some kind of a magic show that, oh, I'm glad I got them through that little ritual. Now they're going to be saved. No, it's always a baptism into something, which is the church. And the efficacy of that water is tied to the efficacy of the word and the sacrament and the community of the church. You separate yourself from the church, you separate yourself from that baptism, and you have no assurance whatsoever. You see, that's the pattern. It is a temple event assuming the presence of the temple. There's a little uh, phrase, Salton, that comes around in, in our, our world about how do we you know, talk about the table and people come to it. And some people just are content to say, well, if you've been baptized, you can come to the table. Well, we're going to see in a minute, that's Stoddardism. That is not Edwardsism. That's just historians speak for, that's not Paul. <laughs> because the church is an essential to the efficacy of that baptism. That's why they took vows related to their raising them in the church. That's why you took vows as a church, as related to helping them raise them in the church. We need to clear that up, not only in other traditions, but in our own as well. And so we have this incredible passage, repent and be baptized, everyone in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amazing. And then he says, this promises for you and for your children. You know what he's quoting? He's quoting Genesis 15. Again, you've got to read your whole Bible to understand all of it. In Genesis 15, he's talking about circumcision. Given to who? That's right, anyone who joins the church. Those who become believers as an adult, you're going to be circumcised. Those who enter the church by means of your sovereign decree into the church as members of the covenant family that's in the church, you've got to be circumcised. Now, then it was a male-female thing, and I don't have the time to go there, but it did include the women in a vicarious way, I promise. Titus 3, we've read. So let me try to put this down. I was, I was going to take you right now through this whole beautiful, lovely confessional summary. I've got it here. It goes about three pages. I'm not going to do it. Um, I would love to do it. Maybe we'll post it somewhere. Because what it's going to do is say, you know, we believe as a church, what every church, reformational church believes, this is not, you can find it in every one of the creeds except for, honestly, the Baptist, uh, from the Anabaptist tradition. And I know today in America that's uncommon because of the Americana experience and democratization and individualism, baptism, the, the Baptist doctrine of this, which, which, by the way, I love Baptists. I came to Christ through Baptists. Blah, 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 blah. Nothing against Baptists other than this. Um, but, uh, but all of our traditions, Episcopal, Lutheran, Reformed, Calvinistic, they're all, you'll see it right here, that we believe that when someone is entered into the church through Christian baptism, that they are saved. Not necessarily, not necessarily immediately, always predicated upon divine election or sovereignty. But we see that ordinarily it's a means of grace. When executed within the church of Jesus Christ, like I've already prefaced, 
unto salvation. That's a quote right there from our, script, from our confession. It's a consensus. That's all that is. You don't believe it because it's a consensus. We don't believe confessions as a rule of faith and practice. Only the Bible is. I hope I've put some substance to it today. That's what I was going to do. But let me speak, and if you can give me just another minute or two, let me speak directly then to some questions. First of all, what must one do to be saved? Well, if you're talking to someone about becoming a Christian, or maybe you're here, and I know some of you are, that are here, and we love that, uh, that we're open, and we have people here that are not believers, and that happens every week. We pray for it. You'll see prayers for you when we come to the table, everything. And if you're sitting there thinking, what must I do to be saved? What I'm going to say to you is exactly what Paul said, or Peter said, in, in Pentecost. I'm going to say, have you acknowledged yourself to be a sinner? That is, let's debrief that. Not just that you do bad things every once in a while, that you're not as good as you should be. That's not, that ain't going to cut it. You're going to recognize that there's something deeply and mortally wrong. Because you see in yourself this disposition, it may take time for you to see it, that just does not seek after God, that does not hunger for Him, that finds many indifference in various ways to be independent of Him, who makes decisions without Him, and on and on it goes. And, and you're going to see that Unfortunately, oftentimes through the consequences of our sins and all the junk that starts coming around into our life and through our life. And one day, if God's working in your heart, he's going to bring you to a place where you're going to say, something's wrong. I need a Savior. What must I do? And he's going to say, come to the place where you acknowledge you need a Savior. And then he's going to say, and then go to a church and be baptized. If you haven't been baptized already, Go be baptized. If you have been baptized, repent and return to your baptism, which always assume the means of grace. And then in that, hear the word of God concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear the word of God in an accountable and, and real and in, and in flesh context of the, of the fullness of Christ who fills all in all, both head and body, the church. And and do that. You know, there's an interesting conversion story, and I want to tell you another story, so I'm going to do this one very briefly. But if you've read the great St. Augustine's conversion story, you may have heard about this great event where he went to a garden, and he heard a voice say, read, read, and he opened a scripture, and he turned to Romans, and he read, and it basically convicted him of his sin. It's a passage in aid about sin and all this other stuff. And he recognized from that reading, that he was a sinner. Now, what's interesting is when I grew up through my own evangelical context, I'd heard that's where he got saved. I guess they stopped reading. Because he says in chapter 9 that he wasn't yet saved. <laughs> and the burden of sin had not yet been lifted. And chapter 9 is a story of how he was convicted of his sin, part 1, the baptism of John, to the place where he came to baptism in the church, and at that day, that Easter Sunday when he was baptized, how the burden of sin was lifted from his life. Now, by the way, Augustine would be one of the greatest advocates for infant baptism. He, was, he had been raised outside the church, like I have. So just keep that in mind. You're thinking that way. So that's the first question. What must I do to be saved? Well, come to the place where you acknowledge your sin and that the sin is much deeper than you want a lot of Mercedes-Benz. The suffering is, the sin is that you have rejected the Creator who made you, and who has rightful claim over your life, and who would do nothing but good with your life if he had it. And to repent of that, and to go to church, and be baptized, if you haven't already, and if you have been, to re-engage your baptism by submitting to the life of Christ and his church in a process that would bring you to 
profession of faith. However, that process could be short or long. That's part one question. Part two is one that I want to get into a little bit more. Okay, so you've been baptized. Your child has been baptized. Some of you young children here have been baptized. What's happening between that and this? That is confirmation of your saving faith. The baptism that you got that promised you the Holy Spirit through the agency of the temple church. You've been raised in the church, perhaps, and you're saying, now, what does it look like to go to the next step? What does it look like to be Timothy Chang? Sorry, Timothy, wherever you are. So let me try to speak to, the, to you a little bit about this. You see, there is a kind of faith that you have as a young child, and parents your children have, that we might call a grammar faith. I've already mentioned that. But it's a faith of the what? What do you believe? I believe in Jesus. Now, my kids could say that the second they could talk. And I, I'm not discrediting it. I believe it's an unconfirmed real faith. It's faith. What's wrong with the fact that they learned it from you and they haven't yet come to a place in their own development, etc., where they could, you know, question it as to seek after answers and reasons and whys and all of that other stuff that we're going to talk about in a minute. It's faith. And we receive it as a promise from God to them. And we are going to presume upon that and raise them like Christians, which is to say they're not pagans. And we're going to raise them here with the kind of logic that is Christian logic or gospel logic. We love because he first loved us. Perfect love cast out fear. We don't raise them with the fear of God. We raise them with the love of God. Not with this, one day you might become a Christian, but if you don't, you're going to hell. It's, we believe you are a Christian and all that Christ has given you in the cross of Jesus Christ is applied to you and we want you to see the motivation of that to be obedient to him and to grow in him, etc., etc., etc. And so you're going to raise your child as a Christian, not as a confirmed Christian, but as a presumed, unconfirmed Christian with faith. And you're going to teach them the doctrines of their faith. And it's important that you do that. Because that's part of the efficacy of baptism, right there, tied to the life of the church and the family of God and what we do with our teaching, etc. But then this child is going to enter into a phase where they're going to question everything you said. Now, you young parents don't get that, but it's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, everything. Did I say everything? <laughs> no. Somehow it will, privately maybe, publicly more, but it'll start happening. And, you know, they may, depending on the child, be doing it very politely. They may be doing it not so politely. But it's going to happen. And it's a good thing. Though it's a really tough season of life. Because they're going to be discerning themselves. What do I believe? They're going to be afraid, especially if they were raised in this church and someone knows who I'm talking to, that, that maybe I'm being manipulated here. Maybe I haven't had the chance to do this. I feel this expectation to, to be a community member, but I don't know for sure if it's me. How would I know? Quote, unquote, almost. Well, don't, and off you go. You know, be, you're right. You need to have that. You shouldn't feel any pressure to come to the table and to profess your faith. And yet, at the same time, don't, don't ignore your questions. Pursue them actively. Because it's life and death we're talking about here. This is not a small matter. And so without conniving, manipulating, any of that stuff, we, we, we start to talk. And this is where parents need to turn a different gear. 
where parents need to go from the grammar to the rhetoric. Well, good question. Why don't we go to the scripture? Why don't we go to the pastor, both of us? I don't really know the answer to that question either. Don't try to be hero parent. Some of the best conversations I've had is with parents and their children together. And so let's just, yeah, I'm kind of curious about that too, the difference between John's. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, let's go ask. And you go, and you together enter the journey of rhetoric, of seeking to understand the argument from Scripture and whether I really can believe it. This is important. And so we're going to, I'm going to close with this, this little story. Maybe you've heard of uh, Solomon Stoddard. Anybody heard of Solomon Stoddard? I didn't think so. You mean he's not on your T-shirt? The only two people I saw was, was Nelson and, and uh, George. And I, Mike, you better put your hand up wherever you are. Craig. All right, you got your hand, didn't you? Well, of course, if you're a historian, a, a biblical or, or church history historian or good theologian, even for that matter, you probably have heard of Solomon Stoddard. But, but most of us don't. We don't wear his name on, on the T-shirt. How many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards? Raise your hand. All right, about three-fourths of you. Now, you see, you think I got a story? Well, let me tell you something. You see, Solomon Stoddard was a pastor in colonial New England. You obviously haven't heard of him, unless you're a religious church historian, etc. But, but have you heard of Jonathan Edwards? You have. Well, let me explain why you have Edwards, that is, and not Solomon, or at least one reason. 300 years ago, if you wanted to tell somebody who Jonathan Edwards was, you know what you'd hear? Oh, he's the grandson of the great Solomon Stoddard. Pastor, theologian, par excellence. That's what they would have said. And they'd say, wow. You know Jonathan Edwards, the grandson of Solomon Stoddard? But now the shoe is on the other foot, as we've seen, and we say the largely forgotten Solomon Stoddard was the grandfather of who? Jonathan Edwards. Why? Well, here it goes. Several reasons. Edwards was a prolific writer and brilliant theologian mind, and he wrote gobs of stuff. So that's a legacy there. But perhaps even more was the way Edwards shaped American Christianity towards an orthodox, I believe, and we believe as a tradition, understanding of Christian, of Christian conversion in contrast to a little variance that his grandfather took albeit that was corrected to his grandfather then. So here it was, the context. The people of New England were passing through a major renegotiation of their Christian status. In the previous generation, everybody within the sound of the church bell was a believer. But they had a bunch of covenant babies and baptized them as they should. And when those baptized covenant babies grew up, they wanted, of course, communion. If they had been through a process of confirmation... That was all well and good. That is a time where they could truly discern the, the body of Christ on the cross as related to their own personal sins, and particularly the original sin of the rejection of God and the gravity of that. But just as, but, but, but just as not all baptized babies, we all know that, at least hypothetically, we hope not, grow up to be Christians, not every young person who attends Sunday school is necessarily a Christian either. We understand that, right? So the generation of ministers prior to Stoddard, including Richard Mather and all the way back to the Reformation and arguably back to Paul, uh, well, they would have focused on a personal, incredible profession of faith in order to partake of communion. Again, I emphasize credible. That is, a rhetorical level. That is, someone who can discern the why and not just the what. 
of what's happening in their life. Okay, so this credible profession, one that not only knew the way, but could understand why and etc. So Stoddard, though, there was a problem. And by the way, this usually happened in Puritan America, mind you, around the age of 14 to 16. That's when it normally happened. Somewhere around there, they would discern this credible profession of faith. Many would argue today that that spiritual development is is far beyond that age, but we don't put an age on it here at all. It can come any time, a credible profession of faith. But but just keep in mind that when you're 14 to 16 in in pre-colonial America, uh, you were probably getting married soon, and a lot of life was coming down upon you in a way that made you think about your life very deeply. That doesn't happen until you're almost 21 these days. So here we go. Stoddard tried then... uh, to hold the line for a while. But he soon found it to be a very unbearable burden. It's going to sound familiar, I'm afraid. Pastors and elders had to decide whether this grace of conversion had been received by teenagers before he admitted them to a visible public sign of fellowship, which of course is the Lord's Supper. But this was related to another problem. For see, in Christendom, when there's power and prestige and maybe even civil rights attached to being a Christian... The pressure is now to have the status of communicant membership in order to receive all those rights. Christendom comes in many forms and fashions, but in that day that meant you couldn't own land unless you were a communicant member. That means you couldn't vote unless you were a communicant member. There are some real temporal effects to you not being a temp a communicant member. Even as my growing up in Georgia, there were some real social effects not being a communicant member. And the pressure's on, especially if you're around people who say that you're not Christians if you're not communicant members. That's a problem we got around here. Thinking my child's not a Christian to become a communicant. No, we just said they're Christians. Presumably Christians awaiting assurance by virtue of that discerned, credible profession of faith. And so he tried to hold the line, but it became too unburdenable as related to this situation in Puritan America. And to make matters more complex, church members had important, again, political implications in the towns, in this pre-revolutionary context, etc., etc., civil rights. So his solution, in practical terms, was to admit people to communion without having to discern whether they were regenerate by a credible profession of faith. We call it the halfway covenant. There's a lot more to it. It makes it a lot more complex. But that's the simple truth of it. In other words, it was enough just merely to assent to the gospel to know your Sunday school answers and questions. The what. Whether they were for real Christians or not, that was enough. But the why and the discernment and all of that, it wasn't. Morally upright, presumably already baptized, of course, church members were therefore allowed to be, uh, take communion. Stoddard believed that the supper could be a means of grace that could be a converting ordinance, he called it. Now, all before then, It was a confirming ordinance only. Baptism is a converting ordinance. Just a confirming ordinance. Such as to bring the soul into the presence of God who would grant and cause regeneration. Again, a role ordinarily reserved for baptism, a converting sacrament versus a confirming sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Stoddard, it made no sense to stay, you see, away from communion because your faith was undiscerned or tested since in the mind communion was one of the things that would strengthen faith or even convert you. Now, the way of administering the halfway covenant so far was was made almost nobody happy. And the revival of Jonathan Edwards' generation was in part a response to the pent-up religious pressure that had been confounded uh, and confused in this prior generation of Stoddardism. 
To be sure, the reaction, as all reactions are, went into some access directions. Sometimes they required all sorts of experiential testimonies that go well beyond a discernment, a credible profession of faith. Later, Edwards would have to pull back on some of those accesses. But the key day, the, 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 but through the revivals and through Edwards' ministry, things went back to the way they were before in most of American Puritan churches, which was to require a credible profession of faith. Now, I tell you this because I want you to hear that this is a recurring issue. <laughs> and it's important for us as a church to get it right. Because I'll tell you, you could draw a line between those churches that begin to take the sacraments and these things like it, and they confuse it the way that I just described, and you can see its demise coming. What we want is a church that believes in the efficacy of baptism and gives it to those who God in His sovereignty has given to the church in order that they might be regenerated and given saving faith. But we should never confuse it. It's a converting ordinance. It's not a confirming ordinance. You can make a mistake this way and that way. And therefore, we must be careful to allow a child the time as we talk to them, reason with them, continue to keep proactive about it. But as we walk with a child towards that reasoning thing. Now, here's where we can really pick it up, I think, as a church. I think we can do, honestly, more than we do already in a Sunday school class. I think we can do more than we're doing at home to really engage the rhetoric of our children. They're getting it earlier. And we need to get in there and, and play devil advocate with them a little bit. Why would you believe something that, like that? Give them license to, to, to play with you about these beliefs. When they come home in their teenage years from school and you see something, why don't you do what I used to do with your kids, which is play the devil. You know some of you where I did that. And I'd say, what? you're crazy to believe that stuff. And turn those nice argumentative juices that they have towards the faith by making them prove to you that Christianity is right or something like that but we need to engage them. You can't just go home after Sunday school and not engage them and think that the efficacy of this baptism is going to have the full advantage of your home and of your church. We need to engage them more. Simple. We need to engage them more at a rhetorical level. And I hope that this story has helped us conclude that. So now we come to the table. What a great celebration. I'm sorry, it's been a longer sermon. I don't care. I'm going on vacation tomorrow. I guess I'm running away from town after this. <laughs> but, but I hope you, that you, it's been helpful to you. I mean that in all love. I don't mean it as a pushy thing. Uh, I want us to understand what just happened here today. And I pray God that he's given you the grace to see it. Let's pray as we come to the table.